Chapter twenty one, part one of the Stones of Venice, volume one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Stones of Venice, volume one by John Ruskin. Treatment of Ornament, part one. We now know where we are to look for subjects of decoration. The next question is, as the reader must remember, how to treat or express these subjects. There are evidently two branches of treatment, the first being the expression, or rendering to the eye and mind, of the thing itself, and the second the arrangement of the thing so expressed, both of these being quite distinct from the placing of the ornament in proper parts of the building. For instance, suppose we take a vine-leaf for our subject. The first question is how to cut the vine-leaf. Shall we cut its ribs and notches on the edge, or only its general outline, and so on? Then, how to arrange the vine-leaves when we have them, whether symmetrically or at random, or unsymmetrically, yet within certain limits? All these I call questions of treatment. Then, whether the vine-leaves so arranged are to be set on the capital of a pillar or on its shaft, I call a question of place. So then, the questions of mere treatment are twofold, how to express and how to arrange, and expression is to the mind or the sight. Therefore the inquiry becomes really threefold. 1. How ornament is to be expressed with reference to the mind. 2. How ornament is to be arranged with reference to the sight. 3. How ornament is to be arranged with reference to both. 1. How is ornament to be treated with reference to the mind? If to produce a good or beautiful ornament it were only necessary to produce a perfect piece of sculpture, and if a well-cut group of flowers or animals were indeed an ornament wherever it might be placed, the work of the architect would be comparatively easy. Sculpture and architecture would become separate arts, and the architect would order so many pieces of such subject and size as he needed, without troubling himself with any questions but those of disposition and proportion. But this is not so. No perfect piece, either of painting or sculpture, is an architectural ornament at all, except in that vague sense in which any beautiful thing is said to ornament the place it is in. Thus we say that pictures ornament a room, but we should not thank an architect who told us that his design, to be complete, required a Titian to be put in one corner of it, and a Velasquez in the other, and it is just as unreasonable to call perfect sculpture, niched in or encrusted on a building, a portion of the ornament of that building, as it would be to hang pictures by the way of ornament on the outside of it. It is very possible that the sculptured work may be harmoniously associated with the building, or the building executed with reference to it, but in this latter case the architecture is subordinate to the sculpture, as in the Medician chapel, and I believe also in the Parthenon. And so far from the perfection of the work conducing to its ornamental purpose, we may say, with entire security, that its perfection, in some degree, unfits it for its purpose, and that no absolutely complete sculpture can be decoratively right. We have a familiar instance in the flower-work of St. Paul's, 
which is probably in the abstract as perfect flower sculpture as could be produced at the time and which is just as rational an ornament of the building as so many valuable van huysens framed and glazed and hung up over each window the especial condition of true ornament is that it be beautiful in its place and nowhere else and that it aid the effect of every portion of the building over which it has influence that it does not by richness make other parts bold or by its delicacy make other parts coarse every one of its qualities has reference to its place and use and it is fitted for its service by what would be faults and deficiencies if it had no especial duty ornament the servant is often formed where sculpture the master would have been set free the servant is often silent where the master would have been eloquent or hurried where the master would have been serene how far this subordination is in different situations to be expressed or how far it may be surrendered and ornament the servant be permitted to have independent will and by what means the subordination is best to be expressed when it is required are by far the most difficult questions i have ever tried to work out respecting any branch of art for in many of the examples to which i look as authoritative in their majesty or effect it is almost impossible to say whether the abstraction or imperfection of the sculpture was owing to the choice or the incapacity of the workman and if to the latter how far the result of fortunate incapacity can be imitated by prudent self-restraint the reader i think will understand this at once by considering the effect of the illuminations of an old missal in their bold rejection of all principles of perspective light and shade and drawing they are infinitely more ornamental to the page owing to the vivid opposition of their bright colours and quaint lines than if they had been drawn by da vinci himself and so the arena chapel is far more brightly decorated by the archaic frescoes of giotti than the stanze of the vatican are by those of raffaelli but how far it is possible to recur to such archaicism or to make up for it by any voluntary abandonment of power i cannot as yet venture in any wise to determine so on the other hand in many instances of finished work in which i find most to regret or to reprobate i can hardly distinguish what is erroneous in principal form from what is vulgar in execution for instance in most romanesque churches of italy the porches are guarded by gigantic animals lions or griffins of admirable severity of design yet in many cases of so rude workmanship that it can hardly be determined how much of this severity was intentional how much involuntary in the cathedral of genoa two modern lions have in imitation of this ancient custom been placed on the steps of its west front and the italian sculptor thinking himself a marvellous great man because he knew what lions were really like has copied them in the menagerie with great success and produced two hairy and well-whiskered beasts as like to real lions as he could possibly cut them one wishes them back in the menagerie for his pains but it is impossible to say how far the offence of their presence is owing to the mere stupidity and vulgarity of the sculpture and how far we might have been delighted with a realization carried to nearly the same length by ghiberti or michelangelo i say nearly because neither ghiberti nor michelangelo would ever have attempted or permitted entire realization even in independent sculpture in spite of these embarrassments however 
some few certainties may be marked in the treatment of past architecture and secure conclusions deduced for future practice there is first for instance the assuredly intended and resolute abstraction of the ninevite and egyptian sculptors the men who cut those granite lions in the egyptian room of the british museum and who carved the calm faces of those ninevite kings knew much more both of lions and kings than they chose to express then there is the greek system in which the human sculpture is perfect the architecture and animal sculpture is subordinate to it and the architectural ornament severely subordinated to this again so as to be composed of little more than abstract lines and finally there is the peculiarly medieval system in which the inferior details are carried to as great or greater imitative perfection as the higher sculpture and the subordination is chiefly effected by symmetries of arrangement and quaintnesses of treatment respecting which it is difficult to say how far they resulted from intention and how far from incapacity now of these systems the ninevite and egyptian are altogether opposed to modern habits of thought and action they are sculptures evidently executed under absolute authorities physical and mental such as cannot at present exist the greek system presupposes the possession of a phidias it is ridiculous to talk of building in the greek manner you may build a greek shell or box such as the greek intended to contain sculpture but you have not the sculpture to put in it find your phidias first and your new phidias will very soon settle all your architectural difficulties in very unexpected ways indeed but until you find him do not think yourselves architects while you go on copying those poor subordinations and secondary and tertiary orders of ornament which the greeks put on the shell of his sculpture some of them beads and dentals and such like are as good as they can be for their work and you may use them for subordinate work still but they are nothing to be proud of especially when you did not invent them and others of them are mistakes and impertinences in the greek himself such as his so-called honeysuckle ornaments and others in which there is a starched and dull suggestion of vegetable form and yet no real resemblance nor life for the conditions of them result from his own conceit of himself and ignorance of the physical sciences and want of relish for common nature and vain fancy that he could improve everything he touched and that he honoured it by taking it into his service by freedom from which conceits the true christian architecture is distinguished not by points to its arches there remains therefore only the medieval system in which i think generally more completion is permitted though this often because more was possible in the inferior than in the higher portions of ornamental subject leaves and birds and lizards are realized or nearly so men and quadrupeds formalized for observe the smaller and inferior subject remains subordinate however richly finished but the human sculpture can only be subordinate by being imperfect the realization is however in all cases dangerous except under most skilful management and the abstraction if true and noble is almost always more delightful what then is noble abstraction it is taking first the essential elements of the thing to be represented then the rest in the order of importance 
so that wherever we pause we shall always have obtained more than we leave behind and using any expedient to impress what we want upon the mind without caring about the mere literal accuracy of such expedient suppose for instance we have to represent a peacock now a peacock has a graceful neck so has a swan it has a high crest so has a cockatoo it has a long tail so has a bird of paradise but the whole spirit and power of peacock is in those eyes of the tail it is true the argus pheasant and one or two more birds have something like them but nothing for a moment comparable to them in brilliancy express the gleaming of the blue eyes through the plumage and you have nearly all you want of peacock but without this nothing and yet those eyes are not in relief a rigidly true sculpture of a peacock's form could have no eyes nothing but feathers here then enters the stratagem of sculpture you must cut the eyes in relief somehow or another see how it is done in the peacock on the opposing page it is so done by nearly all the byzantine sculptors this particular peacock is meant to be seen at some distance how far off i know not for it is an interpolation in the building where it occurs of which more hereafter but in all events at a distance of thirty or forty feet i have put it close to you that you may see plainly the rude rings and rods which stand for the eyes and quills but at the just distance their effect is perfect and the simplicity of the means here employed may help us both to some clear understanding of the spirit of Ninevite and Egyptian work, and to some perception of the kind of enfantillage or archaicism to which it may be possible, even in the days of advanced science, legitimately to return. The architect has no right, as we said before, to require of us a picture of Titian's in order to complete his design. Neither has he the right to calculate on the cooperation of perfect sculptors, insubordinate capacities far from this his business is to dispense with such aid altogether and to devise such a system of ornament as shall be capable of execution by uninventive and even unintelligent workmen for supposing that he required noble sculpture for his ornament how far would this at once limit the number and the scale of his possible buildings architecture is the work of nations but we cannot have nations of great sculptors. Every house in every street of every city ought to be good architecture, but we cannot have a Flaxman or Thorwaldson at work upon it, nor, even if we chose only to devote ourselves to our public buildings, could the mass and majesty of them be great, if we required all to be executed by great men. Greatness is not to be had in the required quantity. Giotto may design a campanile, but he cannot carve it. He can only carve one or two of the bar-reliefs at the base of it. And with every increase of your fastidiousness in the execution of your ornament, you diminish the possible number and grandeur of your buildings. Do not think you can educate your workmen, or that the demand for perfection will increase the supply. Educated imbecility and finessed foolishness are the worst of all imbecilities and foolishnesses and there is no free trade measure which will ever lower the price of brains there is no california of common sense 
exactly in the degree in which you require your decoration to be wrought by thoughtful men you diminish the extent and number of architectural works your business as an architect is to calculate only on the cooperation of inferior men to think for them and to indicate for them such expressions of your thoughts as the weakest capacity can comprehend and the feeblest hand can execute this is the definition of the purest architectural abstractions they are deep and laborious thoughts of the greatest men put into such easy letters that they can be written by the simplest they are expressions of the mind of manhood by the hands of childhood and now suppose one of those old ninevite or egyptian builders with a couple of thousand men mud-bred onion-eating creatures under him to be set to work like so many ants on his temple sculptures what is he to do with them he can put them through a granitic exercise of current hand he can teach them all how to curl hair thoroughly into croche curves as you teach a bunch of schoolboys how to shape pothooks he can teach them all how to draw long eyes and straight noses and how to copy accurately certain well-defined lines then he fits his own great design to their capacities he takes out of king or lion or god as much as was expressible by croche curs and granitic pothooks he throws this into noble forms of his own imagining and having mapped out their lines so that there can be no possibility of error sets his two thousand men to work upon them with a will and so many onions a day i said those times cannot now return we have with christianity recognized the individual value of every soul and there is no intelligence so feeble that its single ray may in some sort contribute to the general light this is the glory of gothic architecture that every jot and tittle every point and niche of it affords room fuel and focus for individual fire but you cease to acknowledge this and you refuse to accept the help of the lesser mind if you require the work to be all executed in a great manner your business is to think out all of it nobly to dictate the expression of it as far as your dictation can assist the less elevated intelligence then to leave this aided and taught as far as may be to its own simple act and effort and to rejoice in its simplicity if not in its power and in its vitality if not in its science we have then three orders of ornament classed according to the degrees of correspondence of the executive and conceptive minds we have the servile ornament in which the executive is absolutely subjected to the inventive the ornament of the great eastern nations more especially hamite and all pre-christian yet thoroughly noble in its submissiveness then we have the medieval system in which the mind of the inferior workman is recognized and has full room for action but is guided and ennobled by the ruling mind this is the truly christian and only perfect system finally we have ornaments expressing the endeavor to equalize the executive and the inventive endeavor which is renaissance and revolutionary and destructive of all noble architecture thus far then of the incompleteness or simplicity of execution necessary in architectural ornament as referred to the mind next we have to consider that which is required when it is referred to the sight 
and the various modifications of treatment which are rendered necessary by the variation of its distance from the eye i say necessary not merely expedient or economical it is foolish to carve what is to be seen forty feet off with the delicacy which the eye demands within two yards not merely because such delicacy is lost in the distance but because it is a great deal worse than lost the delicate work has actually worse effect in the distance than rough work this is a fact well known to painters and for the most part acknowledged by the critics of painters namely that there is a certain distance for which a picture is painted and that the finish which is delightful if that distance be small is actually injurious if the distance be great and moreover that there is a particular method of handling which none but consummate artists reach which has its effect at the intended distance and is altogether hieroglyphical and unintelligible at any other this i say is acknowledged in painting but it is not practically acknowledged in architecture nor until my attention was especially directed to it had i myself any idea of the care with which this great question was studied by the medieval architects on my first careful examination of the capitals of the upper arcade of the ducal palace at venice i was induced by their singular inferiority of workmanship to suppose them posterior to those of the lower arcade it was not till i discovered that some of those which i thought the worst above were the best when seen from below that i obtained the key to this marvellous system of adaptation a system which i afterwards found carried out in every building of the great times which i had opportunity of examining there are two distinct modes in which this adaptation is effected in the first the same designs which are delicately worked when near the eye are rudely cut and have far fewer details when they are removed from it in this method it is not always easy to distinguish economy from skill or slovenliness from science but in the second method a different design is adopted composed of fewer parts and of simpler lines and this is cut with exquisite precision this is of course the higher method and the more satisfactory proof of purpose but an equal degree of imperfection is found in both kinds when they are seen closer in the first a bald execution of a perfect design the second a baldness of design with perfect execution and in these very imperfections lies the admirableness of the ornament it may be asked whether in advocating this adaptation to the distance of the eye i obey my adopted rule of observance of natural law are not all natural things it may be asked as lovely near as far away nay not so look at the clouds and watch the delicate sculpture of their alabaster sides and the rounded lustre of their magnificent rolling they are meant to be beheld far away they were shaped for their place high above your head approach them and they fuse into vague mists or whirl away in fierce fragments of thunderous vapour look at the crest of the alp from the far away plains over which its light is cast whence human souls have communion with it by their myriads the child looks up to it in the dawn and the husbandman in the burden and heat of the day and the old man in the going down of the sun and it is to them all as the celestial city on the world's horizon dyed with the depth of heaven and clothed with the calm of eternity there was it set for holy dominion 
by him who marked for the sun his journey and bade the moon know her going down it was built for its place in the far-off sky approach it and as the sound of the voice of man dies away about its foundations and the tide of human life shallowed upon the vast aerial shore is at last met by the eternal here shall thy waves be stayed the glory of its aspect fades into blanched fearfulness its purple walls are rent into grisly rocks its silver fretwork saddened into wasting snow the storm-browns of ages are on its breast the ashes of its own ruin lie solemnly on its white raiment nor in such instances as these alone though strangely enough the discrepancy between apparent and actual beauty is greater in proportion to the unapproachableness of the object is the law observed for every distance from the eye there is a peculiar kind of beauty or a different system of lines of form the sight of that beauty is reserved for that distance and for that alone if you approach nearer that kind of beauty is lost and another succeeds to be disorganized and reduced to strange and incomprehensible means and appliances in its turn if you desire to perceive the great harmonies of the form of a rocky mountain you must not ascend upon its sides all is there disorder and accident or seem so sudden starts of its shattered beds hither and thither ugly straggles of unexpected strength from under the ground fallen fragments toppling one over another into more helpless fall retire from it and as your eye commands it more and more as you see the ruined mountain world with a wider glance behold dim sympathies begin to busy themselves in the disjointed mass line binds itself into stealthy fellowship with line group by group the helpless fragments gather themselves into ordered companies new captains of hosts and masses of battalions become visible one by one and far away answers of foot to foot and of bone to bone until the powerless chaos is seen risen up with girded loins and not one piece of all the unregarded heap could now be spared from the mystic whole end of section twenty four